the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. This is episode 247 of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Thank you very much for joining me. In this episode, we dive into a chat with Microsoft Vice President of PC, Tablet and Phone, Joe Balfiori. He's here in New Zealand for the Ignite Conference. Well, let's, uh, without further ado, jump straight in. So, welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, Joe. Great to have you here in New Zealand. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start now. I know your your current role is heading up Windows on PC, tablet, and phone. But maybe we can just start by going a little bit back in time to how you actually got, how you ended up at Microsoft in the first place. Sure. And what it was that kept you busy. You were saying you've been at Microsoft for 25 years now. Yeah, I just hit my 25-year anniversary last week. That's great. Well, congratulations. Well, let, let's, let's jump back to 1990 and maybe tell us that story of how you joined Microsoft and what were the things that you were involved in over that sort of 1990 to 2000 period? So uh, in 1990, I was graduating. I went to Stanford. I got a CS degree from Stanford. And I think I was, I was probably a pretty typical CS student. There weren't as many of us back then as there are today. And I remember when the Microsoft recruiters came to campus and described the jobs, um, you, have to, you have to sort of get yourself in the mindset of what was happening at the time. This is pre-internet, and so there's no web yet. Um, and so the, computer science was a very different sort of field was, to yeah, be in, right? It was pretty different, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the exciting things that were happening when I was in college getting my CS degree, you know, in the, in the early days we were on these big time-sharing computers and then on Unix workstations and then on Macs. And I actually didn't really spend any time using what you would call a PC, like an IBM-compatible running a Microsoft operating system. Um, but I did spend a lot of time on the Mac, and I was a big fan of graphical user interfaces. And this is in the time frame when good topography is happening and inexpensive laser printers are a big deal. And what you did to communicate with people was make flyers, which I know sounds ridiculous today. <laughs> um, but I cared about design and I cared about user experience. And Microsoft at the time had the state-of-the-art tools for making people productive in Word, Excel, and it really was the Office apps on the Mac that attracted me to Microsoft because they were democratizing people's ability to do great things with technology. And so when Microsoft came to campus, it was those apps that got me excited and they described this job um, where you got to work on the spec and the design of the product, but you didn't have to write the code. This is program management. I'm like, well, that's perfect for me. So uh, I, fun. I lucked out and got hired as a program manager um, because I was enthusiastic about user experience and the, and the applications. And I ended up um, joining up with my first job in the OS2 group ironically. Wow. You didn't stay working on OS2 no. forever, obviously. Well, uh, otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> right. um, you know, I, I, I sort of had good timing because I got hired at Microsoft in March before Windows 3 took off. Windows 3 took off in May of 1990. So I got my job offer. I thought I was going to work on OS2. Windows 3 takes off in May. I graduate in June. I did a little five-week trip with a friend, and I started in late August. And by the time I showed up, um, it was pretty clear to the people that were working at Microsoft that Windows had a brighter future than OS2 did. And so on my first day of work, my manager took me to lunch and said, you know, you should put Windows on your desktop computer instead of OS2 because you'll probably end up working on that. And I didn't even know what it was. Yeah, okay. Um, so the first, the first 
period of a few years for me, I, it turned out I was a program manager on NT because the group that had been working on OS2 shifted over to work on NT. And so I did that for a few years and then later on moved to the group that was called the Chicago team, um, intending to ship Windows 93, <laughs> which of course you all know as today Windows 95. Now, you know, you mentioned sort of that interest in design and typography and so on. You'd been on the Mac. What were your sort of first impressions of, you know, Windows from that perspective? Because it was it was fairly rudimentary, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of its visual capabilities. I mean, streets ahead of Windows 2 and Windows 1 with the 3.0 yeah. product, it sort of, you know, it was somewhat visually appealing. I think part of the reason that I got hired into the job was in the interviews, I kept complaining about how terrible PCs were yeah, okay. at user experience. And I just had a, a, a strong opinion about it. Mm. And I think, you know, in my early days working on Windows NT, I was one of a few people that really cared deeply about how the GUI worked, what it looked like, whether the language was easy to understand, whether it was visually attractive. And there was so much opportunity to improve it in those early days because there just wasn't very much investment there. And so leading on from that, what was next? Um, I worked on Win95. That was a huge part of my career because we we had a team that was so focused on a great end customer experience. Everything from running on four megabyte PCs, which was the common memory configuration at the time. Long file names were new for the PC. Um, a graphical environment with a desktop and the start menu, making it easy to use for regular people. And then, of course, the coincident in timing that it was Win95 and the internet that both sort of happened in the same um, period of a few years where the use of the PC took off like crazy and then the scenarios grew. So coming out of Windows 95, I worked on Internet Explorer um, in IE4, which was the version when IE surpassed Netscape in terms of usage share, IE5. Um, I worked a little on Windows 98, um, but then the, the next milestone for me was Windows XP, which was a release that I, I managed the user experience team for and was really proud of in terms of um, sort of hitting a sweet spot for consumers and businesses being reliable um, and having a nice UI. Cool. And I guess from there, obviously you've been involved in a few other things between then and now. Any particular you know, highlights that, <laughs> that you've um, um, found challenging but rewarding? Um, I, the way I think about my career, I had this 10-year period where I worked on Windows as it grew and became this highly successful product that tons of people used. And then I had this 10-year period where I did these things that were sort of uh, not as successful, but in, in some cases pretty well-liked. Uh, I worked on Windows Media Center for a few years, which was a great opportunity to do UI design that was even more simple, sort of remote-control-driven, full-screen UI. I worked on the Zune service and client. I actually worked on Xbox Live for a while. Um, and then, and then uh, in 2009, I moved over to work on mobile. And I think that having the experience of contributing to a thing that was such a phenomena like Windows, and then having the experience to build products that generally people liked but weren't as commercially successful, um, I think I learned two different really useful perspectives from both of those. So what do you think you learned from, say, working on Windows Media Center, which, you know, not broad adoption, it's been killed off now. I guess the Xbox is sort of coming into play, overlapping with some of those capabilities. You know, working on Windows Mobile, which has, has really struggled 
really since the iPhone came mm-hmm. out, and you know, I guess we all look back on uh, you know Steve Barmer's comments about the iPhone uh, not going to you know not going to be successful. You know, what do you, what have you you know taken away from uh, you know from those experiences that you can share? One one takeaway for me is that I think for people who are engineers, um, which I would call myself one of, mm-hmm. um, I think that. With an engineering mentality, you tend to have this belief that building a good product is sufficient. And a takeaway for me, whether it's right or wrong, is that it's not. Um, there are so many other things that come into play. You know, you can build a product that's visually attractive, easy to use, but doesn't go to market in the right way. Let's take Windows Media Center as an example. Um, once you have a Windows Media Center PC set up, it's a pretty good experience. The problem is that's not so easy. And that, you know, going back historically, had to do with where the PC was and the fact that the competition, Comcast, will roll a truck to your house. Someone will walk in and set it up, and then you're going to pay them $70 a month. And so business model plays a huge role. Presence in retail plays a, whole, a huge role. And so the, the sophisticated form of excellent marketing, which I think engineers you know, think degradingly about as advertising Mm, is mm. a big important part of a product being successful and um, successful products do all of those things well. And now, so we're looking at Windows 10. That seems to be a flip when we compare it to Windows Mobile, for instance. How many people have installed it? Can you share any any numbers? Well, we announced last week that four weeks in, that 75 million people um, have taken the free upgrade offer and successfully upgraded their PCs and are now now on Windows 10. And the number's still growing, but we're, we're beyond 75 million at this point. And I guess it's interesting because there are a whole lot of different ways of measuring uh, success, but in anyone's book, that's pretty successful, even if people aren't paying for the upgrade, right? Yeah, we feel great about it. It's it's a faster OS ramp than any OS we've done before. Um, we think that it's it's definitely on track to our goals. And as we, you know, it's been nice to see a lot of people upgrade, but it's also been nice to be able to measure their customer satisfaction. We know that the people that are installing it, using it are satisfied and they're recommending it to other people. So we think we have a really good trend happening here. We see not only successful installs, but a lot of continued reservations. And we're trying to be smart about rolling it out in a way that gets the bits to the right people with the right devices so that everyone will continue having a great experience as we keep scaling the rollout. Now, there was, a, there was an incident in New Zealand which the national media picked up on about two weeks ago where the CEO of a local internet provider said that uh, the downloads of Windows 10 were causing congestion on New Zealand's ultra-fast broadband <laughs> network, which is our fibre network. Very, very quickly uh, debunked, I think, from everyone else in the industry that, you know, made a bit of fun of this particular uh, company and it probably didn't help his reputation. But have you heard of there being that sort of impact anywhere or, or is the, the sort of measured approach you've t- taken in terms of pushing it out there meant generally most people have been able to get it without too much uh, stress? Before we launched, there was a bunch of press that was like, Windows Windows 10 could break the internet. Okay. And uh, the, team, the team of people that deployed these updates. Actually, they've been doing stuff like this for a really long time. Windows Update as a service has deployed huge amounts of data pretty routinely for many, many years. And so they had been very planful about it. Um, uh, I think the volume of data that we're distributing is massively huge, but 
these guys know what they're doing. So, no, we have not heard of other places where the internet is getting broken. Um, <laughs> although, you know, we certainly are moving a lot of bits, and there's certainly a lot of people that are out there getting them. And now you've got a, a different way in terms of how those updates get distributed. What should people be aware of in terms of how that how that actually happens? Um, you know, if you're a regular person, you don't need to be aware of anything. It's the process is simple. We've tried to make sure that it's easy to use. There are very few decisions involved, and that all the right things happen under the covers. And so, you know, for the, the, the people who are listening to this that are wondering whether their less technically inclined relatives or friends should upgrade, yes, definitely. Um, we're trying to do this in a smart way that makes it easy. And then for people who are technically inclined but, and interested to sort of know how it works, um, there's lots of cleverness in the model. Um, you know, among the things that we do that we think help make it easy for people, things like pre-downloading the bits, um, making sure that the bits get to your PC and are known to be in a good state before we prompt you to do the install. All of those things are part of doing this in an intelligent way that we have been working on for well over a year and even rehearsing in a way with Windows 8 and Windows 7 users by getting them all up to the latest versions of Windows 8 and Windows 7 before the Windows 10 rollout even started. How do you make sure it's a good experience? Because with any upgrade, there's going to be a percentage of people where something goes wrong. Is that why you've built in that option that allows people to roll back to where they were b- before they started? So someone ends up in a bit of a mess, you can just say, yeah. well, undo, and you're back to where you were before you started. Yeah, it's th- the, the thing that I have found pretty incredible about this whole process is that the people who've worked on this, which is mostly our core team, um, they really have put well over a year into multiple layers of understanding and practice. So let me give you some examples of what I mean. This set of people said, knowing that Windows 10 would come out and there'd be hopefully huge demand, they took the Windows 8 and Windows 7 installed bases and modernized them. And part of that process was figuring out how you do deployment of updates that would actually run, because sometimes they don't. If a PC's turned off and it's only on sporadically, how do you get it to the point where it will run? There's problems to solve there. Um, How do you solve the UI problems so that people will understand what their options are and not inadvertently opt themselves out? Um, How do you deal with things like getting the bits onto the devices? And then which devices do you pick to go at what time? And the team has done all of these things. And so... Um, you know, you, you mentioned that this, there's this hard problem. You have these PCs, they may have incompatible software, they may have incompatible hardware, how do we deal with that? Um, part of it has been looking at the installed base of PCs for the last six, seven, eight, nine months and really understanding it deeply, taking that information to our OEM partners, to IHVs, to application writers to make sure that there's going to be a driver ready when Windows 10 comes out, that we have the driver if a driver needs to be updated. And so on launch date, we could identify the devices that we know will work well. The Insider program has played a big role there. Having 6 million people already done this more than once gives us a pool of devices that we can go target. And then we're careful and thoughtful that with each day, as we notify people, your update is ready, that we've done it on PCs that we know are just a hair different than ones we've already done. We go to a limited number of people, we can tell by telemetry whether everything works, and then when it does, we scale up. Mm. So you you may have heard us say that part of Windows 10 is running Windows as a service, and the way we're deploying this upgrade is a lot with that sort of service-driven mentality. Um, Do small changes, 
watch the telemetry to make sure they work properly and then scale up so the way you're pushing it out isn't just random there is there's a bit of method and who Absolutely. gets the update and yes. when yeah. so for instance i've got you know, the updates come onto my home pc you've had a look and said, well, this ticks XYZ boxes, so we'll let you have it now. But there might be somebody with a different configuration. They might be waiting another week or two and, exactly. and, until you get to that point of confidence. Yep. Okay, that's cool. Now, I've got a, uh, a machine that I, uh, I guess it's a, you know running Windows Enterprise. It's an HP machine, so I didn't go through the, the online update process. What I found with that is it's got something quite interesting around the the battery. So I hover over the battery meter and it says one minute until your battery's charged and the battery's at about, you know, 10% Ten percent or something. I've just plugged it in. Those sorts of things. Is that where you're, you know, still having some behind the scenes work to do with the HPs and so on of this world? I guess there are things that you figure out as you get to that much bigger install base. Well, we the, there are a lot of cases of minor hardware incompatibilities that we've already taken care of. Right. And a huge amount of that work happened well in advance of the July 29th date. Mm. Um, and this really was a place that the Insider program made a big difference because with 6 million people, you can see this incredible diversity of machines. And the people are trying this out and they're giving you proactive feedback. And so we're able to measure and understand those things and make a tremendous amount of progress with the hardware vendors in advance. There still are things, of course, that we're getting worked out. The team's on them. In fact, I don't know the number of updates that we've done since July 29th, but it's pretty you know, it's a meaningful number. And as we see problems in the real world, we're on them. We have a prioritized list. We go work with our partners. We get them addressed and we roll forward. Mm. So there would be updates that people aren't aware of in terms of those major updates that are being done behind the, the scenes in terms of, you know, from a compatibility perspective, yeah, the, et cetera. The, the rough pace has been about weekly. Mm. Um, if you're somebody who installs Windows 10 three weeks in, you'll get three weeks of different stuff than the person who installed it the first day, for example. Mm. And mm. part of that has to do with what device we target. Mm. Now, tell us about that process of sort of you know, developing Windows 10, because, I mean, this has been a, a quite fascinating process from you know, someone that was you know, installing preview builds and so on, and yeah, even quite close to the release point, it seemed like, oh, this is broken, <laughs> things aren't quite right, what's going on with this Edge yep. browser, it won't do this properly, yep. it's crashing. But come install day, which there wasn't you know, yeah, a, it was all a, there. A, a big gap, suddenly yeah. everything was working. What went on behind, you know, behind the scenes you on know, these things for it, it to uh, come together so this well? A, this is a great topic because it's, it does show one of the things that, as an insider, you get this amazing perspective on the development of the process of the product as it goes along. You get to see things that other people don't see. Um, but it is also the case that you don't have the same point of view as we do inside Microsoft. And part of the reason is that we have a large team and the development happens in this distributed way. And so the thing that insiders see is the final integrated version of code that's been ready from a whole bunch of teams. And so you know, let's take as an example, you mentioned Edge. My, my team builds the Edge browser they may have features and bug fixes that they are running on their own machines in their branch that have been done for a week or two weeks, but they're not yet integrated into the common, we call it win main, right. that so, insiders have. Right, so maybe looked as though you're further behind right, than, we than actually what you are. actually were. Exactly. And so part of the process that we use internally is we're hearing feedback from insiders, whether it's, you know, 
people tweeting, it's people posting on the forums, it's people using the Windows Insider app and upvoting, it's telemetry and bugs from devices. So that's a huge, valuable um, stream of data for us. But at the same time, we also are running builds on our own machines. And so we might know that there's a massively upvoted problem that insiders are commenting on in the Edge browser, and we know we have a fix. Right. And we're all running the fix, and the fix looks good, and it's going to come into main and then get deployed. with a. But that could be two weeks away, or a week and a half, two weeks away. And so you know, as insiders, it's worth keeping in mind that although you have an incredibly up-to-date point of view, it is not the most up-to-date point of view. And so I think the effect of what happened at the end was um, we knew as the date approached what the top issues were. We knew what code and work we had in all these branches, and we knew if we brought it together, we had a pretty good way of predicting what the results would be, and in fact, it panned out that way. So, Cool. Now, looking back... In terms of how development, you know, was done in those those early sort of Windows days and so on, you know, I remember running the uh, Windows NT beta, and I think you know the the stack of floppy disks to install that was yeah. probably about as high as the table here, and uh, trying to carry these things, uh, you know. Yeah, it was it was it was a challenge. Let alone install it, but the amount of time in terms of from when something was built, you know, I guess yeah, getting access to that and getting getting it installed to now where things are just sort of constantly iterated, and yeah, you've got people outside of Microsoft running the, these latest uh, builds and so on. Yeah, how much different is that development world now? Sort of you know, twenty years on, it's pretty different. Um, I think that the 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 biggest change for us has been. This this change in psychology, which begets a change in engineering process around Windows as a service, where you know the 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 main way that we would have dealt with the diversity of the PC ecosystem at the time would be to try to recreate an approximation of it inside our labs, and the the industry and the number of users and the diversity of devices has scaled to the point where that's not really pragmatic anymore. That's a useful first step. But it's not pragmatic as an end solution. And so changing your psychology to say we're going to understand the real world is a pretty big change in the way you engineer. It requires you know, recruiting people like our terrific insiders who are willing to invest their time and energy um, in exchange for getting to be a part of the development process. And then we have to have sophisticated ways of understanding what's happening in the real world so that we can get the right fixes and right improvements in. Um, I think that's probably the biggest thing that's different about Windows 10 was that change in engineering approach um, to involve our customers and partners and to and to understand the real world rather than an approximation of the real world. And as a, as a key now for software development, really having that telemetry data is having basically, you know, everyone that runs your product actually feeding data back to you on a sort of semi-continuous basis. Is that just, that's part and parcel of, of being a, a software user today? Yeah, I think, you know, in general, software has moved that way. When, once you get broadband connectivity that's present all the time, there's great benefit in uh, a software system being run in a way that you know what's actually happening. And so this is routine for web services. Mm, this is mm, the way mm. web services work. But where you have client code, it's a little bit more of a new art. Um, it is true that within Windows, we've done that for a long time for things like 
crash uploads. Um, we've had a Watson service for many years that when there's a crash, we get an anonymized signature of what happened on that PC. So, of course, it can't be traced back to any individual person or PC, mm. but we get aggregate data about quality problems in the ecosystem, and that's helped us identify graphics drivers that have been more problematic than other pieces of code and go make improvements. Um, but what we did in Windows 10 was a pretty big generalization of that to understand a wider range of problems than just crashes, even to little pop-ups that ask you, would you recommend this build to other people? And then you rate on a scale of one to five. Yeah, okay. Now, something I guess a little, a little bit more fun, Cortana. Is that really a key to developing Cortana is you've got to have this backwards and forwards uh, information that you're, you're collecting and, and tuning and making Cortana sort of you know, more intelligent on an ongoing basis? Yeah, I, and I'd say there's two parts to that. One is, in general, the idea of creating an intelligent assistant that knows everything about the Internet. You know, new things happen in the world and so there has to be a, a dynamic way that, that that feature is created because some new thing will happen and you have to be able to make the intelligent assistant able to know about the new thing. And so you need it generally, but then you also need it to do a good job of understanding individual people. And the, the way we talk about Cortana internally, we say we want to build the world's best personal digital assistant. With emphasis on the idea that it's personal, that Cortana actually knows you. And when you choose that as what you're trying to do, you really, you add a lot of, um, there's a lot of extra considerations you have to take take into account. Like you have to take into account privacy. You have to make sure that for people who don't want an entity to know things about them, that they can choose to have it not know things about them. And we have to do that well. And so that's why we invented the notebook for Cortana so that there's a transparent way that you can see what Cortana knows about you and you can add or remove things. Um, and we want to put the user in control and that's worked pretty well so far. Um, but all of these things require... Um, sort of service-oriented mentality where you understand the real world and where you can make changes to adapt to things that that user cares about or that are new in the world. How important is having an internet connection for this type of capability to work? If we look out sort of longer term, do we just assume that there will always be an internet connection or would you be trying to develop that, that technology in such a way that it will work, you know, off, offline? Um, I, the way we think about this is to take advantage of the added resources when they're present. Another, another sort of random example would be, what about an accelerometer um, or a GPS chip? When these facilities are present, then we want to make use of them. Um, Windows, I think, as an ecosystem and a platform, has built into it a benefit that it's been around long enough that it'll work great without a cloud connection. But man, if you have a cloud collection, we're going to cloud connection, we're going to light it up and we're going to give you a lot of extra benefit. So um, our psychology definitely is around both. There are people who have Windows systems on submarines and those need to add value. But that's a fundamentally different situation than a consumer in their home with a broadband connection. And we want that one to have great value too. Great. Now, just looking a little bit further out, um, it sort of seems natural that Cortana and, and digital assistant type technology is going to end up in more robotic type devices and so on. Is that an area that Microsoft's doing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of thinking on? Um, one of the things that we try to keep in mind, and we have a terrific research group that experiments with a lot of these ideas, is how how will the physical manifestation of these 
experiences change. And so one good concrete near-term example, we first put Cortana on Windows phones. That's how most people have been introduced to it. But now there are 75 million people, not all of whom have Cortana, because depending on what country they're in, they may or not. But a, a lot of them do. And so now they're trying Cortana out on the PC. And probably most of your listeners know we announced that we're going to have Cortana available on iOS and Android phones so that a PC user can get the benefits of Cortana whenever they're wandering around and their PC isn't turned on or with them. Um, that's an example of us thinking about these scenarios in an end-to-end way. And there's tons of research that's happening at Microsoft um, around ideas related to ambient Cortana and devices and conference rooms and the Surface Hub as a device in a business where there might not be be someone signed in, but is there a meaningful way that you could ask questions to a, a Cortana that's not associated with a particular individual? It's a big area that lots of people are experimenting with, trying ideas around, where you can expect to see us do tons of new features and innovation over the next few years. And have you been watching this new TV show, Humans? I haven't, although I've been reading about it and thinking I've got to get it on my list. <laughs> okay, okay. I was just interested in some comments there, but we'll, uh, we'll leave no, you off the hook because no. you haven't uh, watched it. Because Microsoft had some involvement in that earlier, earlier on through Xbox Studios, didn't they? You know, they maybe did. I don't even know. It's a big company. Okay, cool. Um, anything else you'd like to add? No, it's, uh, it's been a pretty exciting summer for us. And, you know, we're... If anything, we're grateful to the insiders, which I'm sure there are many of listening to this podcast. Um, We've said this before, and I'll say it again. There's no way that Windows 10 happens in this way without all those people. You know, it's both their comments, their enthusiasm, the pool of machines that we've been able to test. Um, And we're excited to keep that program going. It's not a thing that ends with Windows 10 launching. Our first insider build of post-Windows 10 has already come out, and there's more of that coming. Um, obviously, there's insider builds on phones as well. So, you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll add a shout-out and thank you to those insiders, and stay tuned because there's still more coming. Cool. And Cortana for New Zealand, is that something we're going we're gonna to hear about today? We are cranking away to get Cortana to more countries as quickly as we can. We don't have timelines that we're announcing, but we know people want it, and the team is pretty focused on getting it done. In fact, for anybody who's interested, it's worth going back and take a look at the Windows blog. A couple of weeks ago, Marcus Ash and the Cortana team posted uh, about the problems that we're solving and the way we're going about it to get Cortana to be an intelligent personal assistant in whatever country you live in. So it's definitely worth checking out. Now, will, will that work improve Bing? Because Bing outside of the US, you know, for most people, seems like a bit of a joke. It just doesn't doesn't work very well. It's you know you just use Google because it gives you all the local information and so on. What's the tie in between the two? Uh, a there? lot a lot of the work is the same, but some of it's different. So um, one of the things that we think of as a key criteria for Cortana being a great personal digital assistant, whatever country you live in, is for example, she knows the restaurants around. Um, and so that is the same problem as making Bing better at understanding things. But then there are parts that aren't. Um, it's Cortana being able to understand spoken accents. Um, and, you know, Cortana makes jokes sometimes, and we want Cortana's jokes to fit a given culture or, or country. And so that's not really a Bing thing either. Um, mm. So in some cases, it does benefit Bing. In some cases, it's different. Okay, cool. Thanks for your time, Joe. You bet. It's great. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. 
brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.